0: Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Passing Shot. Wimbledon is officially cancelled. British tennis announced £20 million relief fund. And we remember our favourite Miami moments. And welcome to The Passing Shot, the tennis podcast by fans, for fans, with your host Joel and Kim. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the news everybody feared was coming this week. The news that sadly, Wimbledon has officially been cancelled. We'll also be taking a trip down memory lane and remembering our favourite Miami moments down the years. But Kim, first, I've got to address the elephant in the room. It's, It's actually a very special day, isn't it, for The Passing Shot tennis podcast?
1: It is Joel. It is because this is our hundredth uh, pod, so it's a little mini podversary. Can you believe we've been talking uh, to each other for a hundred episodes uh, over the last two years, and we're in our third year? And now there's no tennis. It's all very odd.
0: Yes, we have reached. We have reached a century of podcasts. Very, very proud achievement. I mean, I go back to that first, the first ever episode of us, and look at us now fantastic stuff um but yeah we're still going nothing is going to hold us back coronavirus no tennis whatever we're going to keep on going and i guess we're going to start today's episode kind of addressing i guess the biggest kind of news from the tennis world this week and it's to do with wimbledon and sadly it's been cancelled um i think it's the first time it's been cancelled since uh world war Two. and yeah i mean it felt like it was inevitable which I guess kind of soft softens the blow a little bit, but it's still a bit, you know, it's still a bit sad for, you know, British fans and, and generally the tennis world.
1: Yeah. I th- Cause I had like a, a flight that I was having to rearrange um, a couple, only a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, Oh, I won't, I won't, you know, rearrange it for, for that fortnight, you know, j- just in case Wimbledon still might go ahead, you know? And then I was just like, no, that's not going to happen. So uh, I needn't have bothered. Um, I mean, I probably won't be able to fly anyway, but um yeah it's it's not a surprise they've they've done the right thing and they had to make the decision you know before they sort of started getting contractors in and the site set up that would all have been very very futile so um yeah it's just been completely cancelled and it will be 2021 uh that we'll next get some grass court tennis because uh, all the other events have obviously gone as well um so there is just no tennis whatsoever until at least the 13th of July now um, it's probably gonna be after that time anyway, but, um, yeah, interestingly though, Joel, um, you know, Wimbledon said it's, it's not sort of financially horrendous for them because they had a pretty decent insurance policy, which has meant they've, uh, been shielded for sort of from the most kind of horrendous losses, um, and you mentioned to me earlier that the French Tennis Federation didn't have quite the same insurance. And that might be why they've postponed Roland Garros rather than cancelling it.
0: Yeah, I think it was quite interesting to read this week about the ins and outs of the, the finances. And it, it does sound like the All England Club a few years ago essentially put in a clause into their insurance policy that um, covered them for pandemics. And lo and behold, a few few, few years later, it, it's come up trumps. And Um, You know, I think that has kind of helped them, you know, almost kind of, it's like, yes, we're going to have to take this decision to cancel, but we're in the best place kind of possible for that, um, you know, for that situation, if, you know, if it did arise, whereas from, from what I've been reading, it sounds like with someone like the French Open, perhaps one of the reasons that, rather than cancel, they've just kind of looked, you know, to postpone it and play it in, you know, in September, is actually their insurance policy wasn't as wasn't as strong as, as Wimbledon's and therefore, you know, they felt like they couldn't cancel it. They felt like they needed they needed that event to go ahead this year. And so they're they're doing as much as possible to make sure that happens.
1: Yeah, it's quite interesting. So obviously all the sort of ticket holders and any sponsors, broadcasters, they will all um you know they'll all be sort of refunded. Um, so Wimbledon, well, the All England Club, you know, won't have. Um, I mean, that's some kind of doing. They must have had a crystal ball to have added that into their, their policy. I mean, <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> if I was,
0: if I was the person who had suggested that to your England club, I'd be, I'd be knocking and on, on, I'd be sending whoever it is an email now and asking for a raise.
1: Yeah, exactly. Very clever. Um, but also, British Tennis have announced um, a relief fund, which is very promising to hear for kind of players and coaches who work. for for the LTA. Um, They don't want to obviously lose anyone from the sport during all this time. And um, so they've injected £20 million to kind of get those uh, people through until this is all kind of over. Um, So I think it's going to include um, singles players ranked between 101 and 750 and doubles players ranked between 101 and 250 um, to kind of keep them going. Uh, financially until they can start up again and they said that should it kind of should events be able to get going again before the end of the year they're gonna try and kind of raise the prize money of the remaining events to kind of make up for some of the loss as well so that's you know positive news from British tennis um with regards to to that um because uh, you know it could quite well you know bankrupt some players if they don't have much of a you know a a sort of support system to kind of fall back on.
0: I think also it kind of helps protect as well as the players, it helps protect, you know, the clubs and the coaches as well. And everyone who just kind of relies, I guess, you know, on tennis at a domestic level in in the UK. Um, You know, I'm particularly thinking about coaches who, you know, there will be You know, have no work at the moment. They'll probably be self-employed. So, you know, you'd hope that this sort of fund being set up, um, will be there to support them. And it's great to see sort of this initiative from the LTA, you know, an organization, I guess, you know, over the last few years does come in for criticism, but. At this time of need, actually, it's doing a pretty, you know, bang on job um, to kind of support everyone, um, you know, who's been affected. Um, and we've also kind of seen this as well, I think, this week um, in other other parts of the world as well. Particularly, I don't know, Kim, if you saw any of those photos of uh, at the US Open, um, Louis Armstrong Stadium, um, part of the, you know, part of the, you know, the Billie Jean King Center Um is being used to, um, yeah, to help, uh, the, the, the effort in the United States. I think the Louis Armstrong same is being used, uh, for meal packaging. I think they're using some of the site as well to potentially become a hospital. So it's great to see kind of things that, you know, we would, you know, would hope, I guess, you know, in a, on a normal day to be used for tennis. But actually, you know, in these times of needs, actually, they're being repurposed for, for different things. Yeah,
1: exactly. And a lot of, you know, football stadiums and other, you know, other sporting bodies and organisations, they've been really kind of proactive and, and helpful in, in that respect. I think in Wimbledon as well, they said they're, you know, their, their focus is going to be on, on the local community and and they're going to sort of open up or you know however they can help they're going to to make sure that they're there and I mean also just talking of the US Open there has been rumors that they um they might end up uh moving the US Open back uh to like I don't know almost the end of the year and playing it uh at Indian Wells instead but you know, because of the weather being kind of okay, I guess, in Palm Springs in, I don't know, November. But I mean, this is all just hearsay, I think. But that's a possibility, I suppose. Um, I don't know. We have to wait and see. I don't know by what stage they would need to come to a decision, really, um, for the US Open.
0: I guess, you know, in America, you can play on a hard court pretty much any time of year, whereas, you know, someone like Wimbledon, someone like the, the British grass court season... As you can imagine, keeping grass courts uh well maintained, you know, to play elite level sport on is a bit of a you know is a lot more complex and a lot more tricky situation. And um, again, another article I was kind of reading this week was kind of suggesting that uh, the grounds people at Wimbledon they're just kind of going on their business as usual, making sure I think kind of that cycle is is still in place because yeah. you know I think yeah. another another thing you would think about is even if you did postpone Wimbledon. It would just have ramifications and implications on, you know, the following year and, and it would just put the I guess the 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 grass kind of completely, you know, out of yeah, out of cycle with, you know, what it would what it's normally been for like I guess the last, you know, 20, 30 years.
1: Yeah, and now they'll have to just carry on and then when it comes to those two weeks, just um you know, just kind of I don't know, run around on it to wear it out and then I don't know, re-seed it. I I can't remember now what Will told us when he came on for the podcast, but um, we do have a really good episode on um, how Wimbledon, you know, grounds team prepare the courts, but they'll have to stick to it as much as they can. But who knows, maybe next year the courts are going to be an absolute, I mean, they're already in immaculate condition, but maybe, I don't know, maybe it will affect how they play in 2021. It will be interesting to see if there's any kind of effects such as that. I mean, it's maybe not a bad thing as well, just to give um, other aspects of, you know, tournament infrastructure a break you know like i'm just thinking of events like glastonbury they they have um a year off every now and then anyway don't they to kind of let the field rest and i'm not saying wimbledon's the same but they you know there might be long-term benefits that come out of this um as a result of having to make these decisions I'm just trying to think positive.
0: <laughs> I love that idea that Wimbledon is now in like a, a fallow year, like Glass, like Glastonbury. Well, yeah. Uh But yeah, I can, I, I, I totally, I can totally buy into that that I mean, idea. Wimbledon and,
1: Park, uh, where the queue, you know, takes place, that will have a good rest, <laughs> I suppose. There won't yeah. be like hundreds of tents turning up and ruining the grass, so that will, uh that will benefit.
0: And I guess the last the last point to make before we move on is you know I was just trying to think about the you know the players and you know who are kind of almost kind of the biggest losers from this situation from the fact that we might not have well we won't have Wimbledon in in 2020 and I can only think more well most about people like Roger Federer and Serena Williams who you know are in the kind of like the twilight years of their career and you know, although it kind of sounds you know ridiculous to kind of think you know Roger Federer's three wins won't be you know at Wimbledon. Do you you know do you see them Kim being there in in twenty twenty one? I'm sure they'll be even more
1: motivated to be there in twenty twenty one. But yeah, I totally agree. I think they are the biggest losers. Um, anyone kind of in the latter stages of their career, just because it's you know it's another year of not being able to you know add those final titles to their to their record book and and make history so it's oh it's just it is probably more frustrating for them but who knows that you know a whole year off from competing that might do their bodies wonders and they'll be able to carry on into like their mid-40s or something so and you've got to assume Federer is going to be just as motivated still by the Olympics even if they are you know delayed by a year so we will see watch this space.
0: Okay, welcome back, everybody. Now time for something a bit different. Today would have been Miami Open finals day. Uh, But without any prospect of tennis on the horizon, myself and Kim have decided to kind of look back on all the top moments from the Miami Open through the years in recent memory and kind of highlight what we think are our eight eight favorite moments. And yeah, we're going to try and we're going to do we're going to kind of test this out on Miami and then perhaps roll it out to the other Masters events coming up um in the in the clay season. Kim, I, I you know, I think actually I know you're a Nadal fan and, you know, that means well actually Miami Open for Nadal wasn't isn't actually that good of a hunting ground, is it?
1: No, he he's never won Miami, so for me i'm like hmm favorite moments <laughs> hard to come by <laughs> um but like there have been some 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 real you know nice moments and epic matches as well so um we will be kind of overviewing some of those and obviously the tournament has been going since like the 80s but neither of us were actually alive when it uh, started off so we're kind of focusing more on more recent uh, years um we
0: should add Yes, and we'll be we'll be putting up these moments on Twitter as well, so you can in a vote, so you can actually uh, vote on which you think is kind of the ultimate Miami moment from recent memory. Uh, perhaps we're missing one. Let us know uh, on social media at Passing Shot Pod. But uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about our eight favourite moments and making the case for each one uh, why we think uh, that moment is so epic. And uh, Kim, I'm going to start off with two thousand and five a a kind of a pivotal year I think uh particularly for uh your best your your favourite player Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer of course who they met for the first time in in a final at Miami open at the Miami Open two thousand five. Rafael Nadal was kind of a 17 year old teenager and um you know I think they had they had crossed paths previously um in 2004 but this was their first final and yeah it kind of felt for me that this was the match that ultimately forged the the rivalry between the between the two between the two of them because it was such an epic match i mean this is this was at a time Kim when the masters events were best of five sets which yeah. was you know, it's, it's absolutely, <laughs> cra- absolutely <laughs> crazy to think about at the time but uh yeah it was um best of five sets Federer came back from two sets to love down against Nadal and won two six, six seven, seven six, six three, six one. So a real kind of obviously shift in momentum there. But um it was just a really it was just really epic for me because You know, this was a season when Federer was just kind of slaying everyone left, right and centre. And, you know, I think in his own words, he was kind of saying, well, if I lose a set, everyone is like, you know, goes into hysteria. was like, oh, that that can't happen to Roger Federer. But, you know, in this match, you know, as I said, Nadal just came out and, you know, he played his game um, and you won the first two sets. I think Federer was kind of two points from from defeat. And uh, it, it just kind of showed you know, it showed that there there was a different side It was a different side to Roger Federer in that he was able to kind of dig deep in these situations. And it, it took someone, you know, like Rafa Nadal, a good a player as Rafa Nadal in order, you know, f- for that to happen. Because up to that moment, it felt like he was just kind of, he was almost kind of coasting it. Yeah, Federer kind of didn't really have a major rival, did he? He was, it was all kind of
1: very run of the mill, wasn't being challenged. And I guess when Rafa kind of, really showed what he could do this was like their first big match um well only their second match overall and you know it it was suddenly like who is this guy like almost beating Federer in a Masters final so it really yeah gave us a taste of of what was to come for the next you know uh 15 years I suppose um and now what they've had Forty matches, I think it is, and you know. So, if, if people at this match in Miami had known, like, that this was the start of something, then you know, it's just, it's just that's what I, you know. It's nice to look back, isn't it? um But actually, yeah, Rafa had beaten Federer the year before in the third round of Miami, um so he had already beaten Federer at this point, and the fact that he was so close to winning it and. All these years later, Rafa still hasn't won Miami, so I bet he's kicking himself (laughs) so close. (laughs) And he would have done it if it had been best of three sets. Maybe he would have had a Miami title.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think what's kind of interesting is that, you know, this was a match when, you know, this is very early on in their rivalry. And, you know, they were still kind of, you know, kind of watching on YouTube, you can kind of still kind of see that they were kind of working out. Each other's games. And I think, you know, Federer was first to, you know, even the first kind of person to acknowledge that you know, he really struggled, I think, early on to kind of figure out that, you know, that wicked sort of topspin, that extreme topspin that, you know, Nadal was putting on his forehand, the fact that he was a lefty. Um, and yeah, Federer almost, you know, to begin with was going to be really frustrated by this sort of game that you know, he'd never seen before. And it, I think, another reason I, I kind of have brought up this moment is because it's got something we don't see very often, Kim, a Roger Federer racket smash.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is quite rare. I mean, he does get, he does like to get a bit angry from time to time, but <laughs> yeah, we don't often see a, a racket getting destroyed at, at his hands. But uh, yeah, that just shows you how rattled I suppose he was getting by, uh, by Rafa.
0: I mean, and I think you know, I think Federer was you know, back in the day before we all know him as the kind of serene gentleman of the game, you know, he was a bit of a hothead and, you know, it just showed you that someone like Nadal was able to kind of get under his skin. And I think, you know, that contrast in styles that, you know, spectators, you know, gravitated towards, you know, Federer was trying to basically, you know, figure out, yeah. How, how can my style win over his? And um, yeah, he was, he was struggling for it. So um, so yeah, 2005, Federer and Nadal meet for the first time in a final, Miami Open. That is my kind of first moment. Kim, what is your? That's the that's my first pick. Kim, what's your what's your what's your next pick?
1: Well, I should just say, Joel, on this one, we did have a really good uh, chat to Dan Rubenstein, who um, is the host of Sports Wars podcast, and he did a series on Federer and Nadal, and he came on our podcast about a year ago almost, to talk through their rival. And I think the first episode of his series does focus a lot on that Miami match. So if anyone hasn't checked his podcast out and our chat with him on our pod then do take a listen uh through our back catalogue because it's a really interesting chat it kind of really delves into their rivalry more if you want um more fed out but yeah i'm gonna go also for something uh involving rafa another final there he that he lost <laughs> at my end <epic>. i <laughs> um,
0: bet you're loving this so
1: yeah fast forward a few years to two thousand and eleven. Um I remember actually, you know, really watching this one at the time and being like gutted afterwards. Um because it was against Novak and you know, Rafa was almost just very close to victory yet again. Um we were now back to well, now three set finals, so five sets had long gone by this point. Um, but it was a you know almost three and a half hour match. Rafa took the first set six four. Novak came back in second set, 6-3, and it went to a last set tie break. So it was really, really close. Could have kind of, could have gone either way, I suppose. Um, but Novak clinched it. Um, I think it was 7-4 in the tiebreak. break. Um, and I think really, you know, Novak, 2011 was that year that he just kind of absolutely arrived. You know, we already knew that he was going to be a real top player by that point. But 2011 was... That crazy year where he went on a forty-one match winning streak. Um, so Miami was was part of that streak, and he just couldn't really lose. I think, uh, to be honest with you, at that time he was just um, kind of electrifying. And yeah, Rafa was so so close. He put up such, a, you know, such a good fight. And you know, if Rafa had won that, then who knows? Twenty eleven might have been different. Maybe Novak wouldn't have got on to win as much as he had. Because if you look at what he did that year, he won. 3 of the four majors uh he also had one Indian well so he did the sunshine double by winning Miami as well he won Madrid and Rome Montreal so five masters events um that year he went 10 and 1 against Rafa and Roger so he was when I mean, he was unbeatable really by anyone um but yeah i just thought because of the significance of that final taking place in 2011 which was Novak's Golden year. I mean, he's had quite a few golden years to be honest, but this was kind of his crazy, kind of uh stats go mad year. I suppose he became world number one as well a couple of months after that. So for me, I just think this is when he kind of the the period of time in which he cemented his place as you know gave us a real side, I guess, of the next ten years on the tour. You know, because he has pretty much led the rankings for most of the last 10 years, hasn't he? Yeah,
0: I mean, I guess this, for me, it's like this match was during that, you know, during that win streak. And, you know, you talk about that season and it's probably one of the best tennis seasons in, in recent memory. And, you know, I think for me, it kind of showed, you know, you talk about that statistic, 10 and ten and one against Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. It just showed you that he, you know, in this season, he just had their number. He knew... How to beat them, um, and I think you know. I think the reason for me this this moment is so epic is because you know he showed the um, he could he could do it on a hardcore, and that almost kind of set him up, you know, to go on to the clay season to go on to kind of Rafa's backyard, and he you know he beat him in um, I think he he skipped his the but then yeah, no, but he, he beat him in the final in Madrid. I yeah. think he beat him in the final in Rome, um, and. Yeah, it just kind of it just kind of showed. So one thing he how... didn't really
1: beat him at Roland Garros as well, but I think that was the year that Novak lost to Rafa in the final of Roland Garros. And I think it's the year he hit like a double point on on match point down. I'm sure I think I watched it. It was I think it was a delayed final. It went on to the Monday and because uh, of bad weather and I'm sure I was at Queens like Try, watching on like the big screen and I was like so relieved when <laughs> it finally ended but um so that would have been pretty much his only loss uh almost that year and yeah I think I've read somewhere it was the best start to a year in men's tennis since 1986 uh because when Novak won Miami that was his 24th victory in a row so um, you know, we were talking the other day, weren't we, about Novak this season. He hasn't lost a match, um, so who knows? He could have gone on another 2011 streak if if it hadn't all been curtailed. Um, but yeah, he was almost perfect, wasn't he? Really in that season. And actually, he's now won Miami several times, and he's he's won the Sunshine Double, which is when you know a player wins Indian Wells and Miami in the same year. He's done that four times, so. He is very, very dominant, um, especially on on uh, at these events. So,
0: I think just to clarify, the French, so French Open, uh, Djokovic win streak came to an end against Federer.
1: Oh, oh, I'm thinking of a different year then. I think, I
0: think so. I think uh, Djokovic uh, twenty twelve perhaps.
1: Ah, okay. I think I was a year out of that then. <laughs> okay, I don't. Oh, so that final would have been Federer and Nadal then. Okay. My bad. I think I'm thinking of 2012 anyway.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, that also, yeah, epic, epic moment. Right. Let's move on to another moment. Um, And I think, you know, I think so far we've been talking about kind of rivalries and and seasons. And this is a moment that I've chosen because it's just a match. And it was a really entertaining match from the word go. And the match I'm talking about uh, was in 2017. Um, I think it was ATP's match of the year, actually. it was match between Roger Federer and Nick Kyrgios in the semi-finals. It was three tie-break sets, Federer prevailing, uh, prevailing, I think, 14-12 in the final set tie-break. So it went right to the, you know, right to the limits of, you know, a, a best of three set match. And it was just such a, ah, it was just such an epic match. I think one of the reasons for me that made it so epic was that, you know, again, this was a sort of, you know, Federer- you know, Federer, you know, at his sort of, you know, peak of his powers, you know, the GOAT was kind of, you know, he was he was obviously cementing, had cemented himself with kind of one of the greatest tennis players of all time. And then along comes along someone like Nick Kyrgios, who, you know, at the time we know is like one, you know, one of the most talented kind of teenagers, one of the most talented up and coming players on the tour. It was just kind of fascinating to see, you know, what someone with the talent like Nick Kyrgios could do on a tennis court to you know, someone in that mode of greatness like, uh, you know, like Roger Federer. And, you know, I I always thought it was kind of funny, actually, because I think, you know, in their first kind of two matches, they played each other. There were, they all went, they all, all the sets went to tie breaks. And, you know, it's kind of clear that, you know, there was not, there was not a lot separating them. And, you know, obviously when you get to a tie break, it could go one way or the other. And I think that's what made it sort of so com- so compelling is that, when it got to the, you know, the business end of each set, it it genuinely, I think it, you know, it could have gone either way. And, you know, I think Roger Federer prevailed, but it just as easily could have been Nick Kyrgios. And, you know, another thing I would kind of say about this match is that this was, I think this was also a peak, peak mid period in tennis Kim, where, you know, it was the crowd, particularly like American crowds, completely pro Federer, like literally 99.9% of the crowd pro Federer. And, you know Nick Kyrgios kind of rising to that and you know I think I think also kind of if I'm thinking about Nick Kyrgios that's the sort of position he likes to be in where like you know he feels like the world's against him you know he's got someone like really good across the tennis court crowd are kind of like trying to put him off and you know I think he kind of plays to that and kind of really the story in that match felt like was kind of this hero versus villain sort of piece Um, and it just made it so so compelling.
1: Yeah, no, he definitely prefers being, I guess, the like an underdog, I suppose. And he doesn't, I guess, want to be the the one that is expected to just kind of progress through. And I mean hadn't he he beaten Federer in their previous meetings, isn't that right? I'm sure like it'd been really close tie breaks, but I'm sure Kyrgios had edged it. So I guess for Federer to put him to bed in this in this one was very relieving and pleasing, I suppose. And um yeah, I remember this one I don't think I managed to watch all of it, but I I think it is definitely stands out because it was a highly entertaining match, and that was the semi final. So I don't know who won the event that year. It was it Federer? Did he go on? I assume he went on to win. I'm I'm not I'm not sure, but um, but yeah, it was uh, any match of Kyrgios and I guess late night crowd, Federer, tie breaks. You know, it's going <laughs> to be entertaining. And uh, I, I
0: love the fact that there was like racket smashes classic, <laughs> Nick, <impressive>, Kyrgios, yeah. <laughs> classic like, Nick Kyrgios antics but I think you know the thing you know the way kind of Nick Kyrgios has evolved is like you know he's he's developed that sort of um that image that people might think oh he's kind of throwing a match or you know he doesn't he he doesn't put uh, enough effort into you know his you know matches when he steps onto a tennis court but you know uh, you know in this match it just showed you kind of how much you know, he cares and how much effort he puts onto a tennis court. And even though he was kind of like doing the classic kind of Nick Kyrgios antics like, you know, swearing and, you know, chatting like to the crowd and
1: in this one. <laughs> I, don't <laughs> I, don't think I don't think it was after to so. Serves in this one.
0: But I think he was like oh, there, there was kind of those classic things yeah. going on, those classic staples of it. It was a bit out it was kind of born out of that like you know, it wasn't through a want of like it wasn't through a lack of effort he lost that match. It was just like it's just kind of a better player on on the day
1: yeah no absolutely it was uh no that was definitely a very 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 good match and i think probably arguably possibly the match of the one of the well certainly one of the top men's matches of that year um and one of i guess maybe kiros's best best matches even though he you know came out on the losing end um Joel, I know you're a massive Andy Murray fan. So my next one that I remember, I don't know, I'm sure you do as well, but um, it was the Murray-Ferrer final um, back in, gosh, what year was it? 2013. Yeah, the year that he went on to win Wimbledon. So I don't know if you remember, but it was a very, I don't know, it was a bit of a war of attrition because it was obviously Miami heat. You know, it was uh, very humid, very hot. And it was a a gruelling match. Um, Murray lost first set, 6-2, and then came back 6-4, 7-6 in the third set. So last set tiebreak again. All these last set tiebreaks, bit of a theme going on here. And um, yeah, he was obviously getting very annoyed with himself um, because he failed to serve out in the decider. Um, then Ferrer had a match point, um, which Andy managed to save. And then they eventually went to the tie break, which was actually pretty straightforward at seven one. But by that point, I think both of them were just completely kind of knackered. Um and actually the match point um that Ferrer had, he he stopped to challenge, um to challenge um Murray shot um so he kind of just completely stopped playing and it was actually you know it was in from Murray so it was a pointless stop and challenge from Ferrer so I, I think he's been ruining that ever since because he retired last year and he said that losing that final was actually one of the saddest moments of his career <laughs> which I know I shouldn't laugh Aww. but it's sort of I don't know it's sort of you know it's a bit of a shame but um you know you don't want to
0: I watched the hi- I've I've watched the highlights of that match this week and yeah, as you said, it was an absolute absolute battle. Uh, you know, kind of both kind of road both players in roadrunner mode, you know, mm. across the the court. And it was those sorts of matches. I kind of I think I actually kind of look back with a bit of sadness kind of on from an Andy Murray point of view, because I think it was those sorts of matches that, you know, really took its toll on his body. Oh, and and- it. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's these sorts of matches where, you know, at the time, you know, I'm absolutely loving it because, you know, it's a really exciting, you know, different brand of tennis to someone like, you know, Roger Federer or, Rafa- or mm-hmm. you know, a Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal. Um, but, but, you know, the more I kind of, uh, you know, the more kind of the time passes, I always kind of look back on these matches and just kind of think it's a bit sad kind of, uh, you know, the, the amount of effort he had to kind of put into these matches, actually, what toll was that taking on his body?
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And he obviously doesn't kind of come to fruition until a couple of years down the line. But um, yeah, so a gutting defeat for, for David Ferrer. And, you know, he's such a fighter, isn't he? And a battler, he will literally go to the very end and give it his all, which is, you know, why he was one of the most popular players on the tour. Um, but also, you know, that was the year, 2013. Obviously, Andy obviously won Wimbledon and... You know, it was a historic year really for him. Um, but he also became, I think, with winning Miami, he overtook Federer in the rankings to go up to number two in the world. So it also had some kind of, you know, significance in terms of that um, as a result of of this victory. Um, but interestingly, as well, um, I read that no Spanish player has ever won. Um, the the Miami tournament uh like has won the men's tournament anyway so obviously Rafa hasn't David Ferrer lost that final i think i read that no spanish player has ever has ever won it so obviously it was not meant to be <laughs>
0: but it's a bit of a hoodoo isn't it for for Spanish yeah. players but uh <laughs> yeah I was just just thinking out of the significance I guess of the you know moving up to world number two you know this was at a point when you know people were thinking oh Federer and Nadal that rivalry's old hat now it's all going to be about you know Murray
1: and Djokovic, Murray and Djokovic yeah. kind of, you yeah. know pulling
0: the pulling the tour and um you know that didn't necessarily come to fruition actually we had kind of like a we had that big four phase, didn't we? Mm. And, uh, you know, this kind of felt, you know, these sorts of moments, these sorts of titles kind of solidified, I think, that, you know, that sort of, uh, you know, that top four, best four uh, kind of group kind of from, you know, from the rest of uh, the exactly. rankings. Um, but, um, yeah, moving on to another kind of memorable moment for me. And, and uh, yeah, no, another kind of positive one for, you know, British point of view. And I think one that I guess, you know, definitely was more unexpected was, joe conter's victory in 2017 which um biggest title of her career i think that's still the biggest title of her career um where she had uh she beat caroline wozniacki in the final um and yeah it was the biggest trophy by any british woman since virginia wade won wimbledon 40 years earlier so I think kind of reason that was so kind of epic, particularly for British fans, was kind of just the uh, you know the scale of the achievement. Um, you know, we'd have we had in terms of kind of the women's game, you know, in, on kind of British shores. Uh, you know, we, it was kind of a long time coming, waiting for someone with you know someone's you know, pedigree and caliber like a Joe Conter. Um, you know, I think we kind of. Pers- think we maybe were going to see it with someone like, you know, Laura Robson, for example, that didn't necessarily come to fruition. And I think kind of Conta almost kind of came in and say, Hey, I'm here. Uh, and actually I'm, I mean business. And I think 27, 2017 for her was kind of the season that, yeah, she, she did, she did show um, to British fans, she showed to the world actually that, yeah, she meant, she meant business.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was, very happy when she won it because I was not expecting any British like female player anyway, um, you know, to sort of win a premiere tournament. So, yeah, really, really amazing. And, and obviously, that was before, well, that was the year that she reached the Wimbledon semis
0: semi final, yeah,
1: yes, yeah. So, obviously, taste the quarters. Of, yeah, taste of things to come. Um, and I guess gave her that belief that she could like totally compete and and achieve and win at the the highest level of the WTA tour so i think yeah that that i think this one would be one of my favorites actually just because it was uh so impressive from her and and yeah it'd be great if she could kind of and obviously she's well, she's got to the Rome final last year so she um almost clinched another one um at this at this level but yeah i think it really gave her so much confidence going into the slams
0: Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, I think the fact that, you know, she took out Halep in the quarters and then Venus in the semis, obviously in front of her, you know, home home fans, it just showed you that, um, you know, she was ready to kind of take it up a notch. And, you know, I think with that kind of victory, you know, she put her herself on the radar of, you know, of, of kind of uh, tennis fans who kind of follow the tour. But then, when it came to Wimbledon, she got to the semifinals and beat Halep in the quarters. She then was able to kind of put herself on the map in a more broader spectrum. Um, you know, with just kind of British fans who, you know, might just only know Andy Murray. But um, yeah, it was just kind of it started. It started in Miami, and I think that's kind of why it was. It was so. It was so important.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you, Joel. <laughs> um, now let's go back a bit further, a bit more retro here to. Uh, 1999 um which is if anyone remembers the first time that venus and serena williams played each other in a final and that was in yeah miami in 99 um so uh this one venus venus took so actually venus won most well the first couple of their you know their head-to-heads uh on the professional tour venus was the um defending champion and went to three sets but she she beat serena in the final uh 614664 i think it was um it was the year that they both uh i think had those amazing like beads uh in their hair so if anyone remembers (laughs) great hairstyles um but yeah i just think
0: you don't see enough beads on the tour nowadays do you kim
1: no, no, we don't. And we, we should. <laughs> but um yeah, it was the first it was the first final that they played against each other. They were only, what, like nineteen and 18, 17, 18 at the time. Um on the way, um Serena had taken out Martina Hingis and Venus had taken out Steffi Graf, which is crazy. Um I guess that was really demonstrates kind of the change of the the eras, like changing of the guard, I suppose, going into the Williams uh, era. Um, but Serena was coming off two titles going into this match. Um, Venus was the defending champion, um, and yeah, it was a bit of a dogfight between the two of them. Venus came out on top, and to be honest with you, it was one of Venus's, I guess, last victories against Serena because, you know, she Serena obviously had her has her number you know, out of all of their meetings. But um, the early days, obviously, Venus was kind of coming out on top. But Serena went on to beat her later on in the year in a in a in the Grand Slam Cup, which I'm I don't know what is the Grand Slam Cup. I don't really know what that event is. I think maybe it's the old name for something. I'm not sure, but
0: yeah, I think this. I think what's interesting with this one is that you know the way I always thought about you know Venus and Serena kind of that rivalry, you know, uh, you know, in its in its kind of heyday. I think there was always this suspicion. I don't know where it came from, but I always kind of remember with like kind of when when it came down to Wimbledon and if it was kind of a Venus Serena final. You know, there was always this kind of feeling of like oh, I, you know, they're having a chat in the locker room about who's going to win who's the match win or, this time. <laughs> or, you know, some sort of ridiculous sort of idea that they just kind of like, you know, talk about, oh, oh you, uh, you can have the title this time or, or whatever. But, you know, I, again, I was kind of watching the highlights of this during the week and, it you know, they were not playing like, yeah, um, you know, they were, you know, best friends or you know family members they were really kind of like you know there were but bo- I saw like body shots um <laughs> you know at the you know body shots at the net like it, it felt really kind of you know both of them really wanted to really win wanted it.
1: it I mean they were so early on in the both of their careers so it was kind of like go out and get what you can it was you know they were at the very start really weren't they I know Venus is kind of two years older but they weren't gonna let I think the other person getting their way or play kind of family politics. <laughs> um, no, So yeah, I, think, I yeah. thought it's kind of like, this was a real hallmark of, of the next, I don't know, the next generation of women's tennis. Um, you know, the Williams dominance that really for the next 10 years was, you know, we just got so used to seeing them at every Grand Slam final. It was crazy. And, um, yeah i think for me it's just this was like the start of of the next kind of generation like going into the new millennium almost it was yeah heralded in that that williams era
0: i know and it was it was kind of fascinating to see it play out because yeah because because they were you know they were sisters and you know i think i think what's kind of changed you know since then is that you yeah know, i think you know understandably at the time i think one of the reasons i think venus was better was or, you know, had the upper hand, was that Serena's power, I don't think, was kind of as fully developed, of course, as it is now. And I think as a result of that, Venus was kind of able to kind of, you know, have the, you know, the upper hand, uh, like, certainly uh, earlier on in their career. But I think, you know, once Serena was able to, to kind of develop that that power game, I think that's obviously what kind of led her to kind of this all-conquering, uh, person on, on, on a tennis court.
1: Yeah, because I think if you look at their head-to-head in total, Serena leads, I think it's 18-12, which actually I thought it might be more one-sided than that. But um, obviously Serena's won the, the bulk of the Grandstand Finals that they've played against each other, including, was it four in a row I think they played um, against each other, which, which is mad. I think the 2002 French to the 2003 Australian they played each other in four, yeah, straight finals. That's, that's that just is, crazy, isn't it? That is unbelievable.
0: <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, yes. Um, I, Kim, right, let's move on to my next moment. Now, this is not a moment that has a specific kind of player in in mind. I just think that it's just, it should be on I don't think it actually gets the recognition. Maybe it deserves. And actually, I don't know if you know, but Miami Open... Was the first ever uh, tournament on the tour to use Hawkeye. And oh,
1: okay, that is a fact that people probably don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and that was back, uh, when was that? I think that was back in 2000, and uh, what was it, 2005, 2004, something, something like, something just in the early stages of the new millennium and um
1: which is kind of mad because i thought it came in a bit later but i think um when i saw this as well i was surprised because i thought oh i didn't know that they'd trialed it so early um Mm. and then they did yeah
0: I think it, it had been used at sort of exhibitions um, and a couple of like non-Tour tournaments before, but I think this was the first time it was kind of rolled out at, at a level that, you know, you know, fans were able to kind of see and kind of, you know, see how, you know, see how it worked. Um, and I like, I like this little, little tidbit. Uh, first ever challenge using Hawkeye was in a women's singles match between Jamea Jackson and Ashley Harkle Road, um, <laughs> which I think is <laughs> wow. a little bit. I think I think that is probably the biggest claim to fame either of those players may have. Wait, I
1: mean, possibly. I don't. I think know. Ashley
0: Harkle Road actually had a little. She had a little run at some I point. Think she uh, was. At, was she at top ten?
1: I think she has been. A, was she top ten at one point? I mean, I I have heard of her, but I haven't heard of jamea (laughs) jackson
0: well they they both played in the first ever match um on a on a a first ever match at a tour level tournament uh and use hawkeye um and yeah just because now obviously kind of hawkeye has come in staple on the tour men's tour women's tour um and, you know, I think people at the time, you know, had its critics. I've, I know one of them was definitely Roger Federer. But, you know, it's just come in and it's just worked worked really well. And it's one of those things that you don't really think about where it's kind of started. But, yeah, it started, you know, on a tour level in uh, in Miami.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And uh, I've just fact-checked, Joel, and it was 2006. Um, 2006, yeah. Anyway. So, and also Ashley Harker rolled. She her highest ranking was 39, so she was not in the top ten. So my bad. Um but yeah, it's uh I don't know who actually won that match. Do we know? I think oh Jamea Jackson won that match. Jamea Jackson um, won So it, yeah. if any that might come up in, you know, a sporting quiz, who knows? <laughs> but yeah, it's um obviously now we just kind of accept Hawkeye as an t- integral part of, of the game. I mean, apart from I guess on the clay. Um but even then obviously when you're watching the tv broadcast they they kind of use the technology don't they to to kind of show but yeah it was just um crazy that you know what 14 years ago that was that was a new thing and uh (laughs) who knows how many things might have uh david ferrer wouldn't have stopped on that point for a start when he had match point (laughs) because he wouldn't Uh, have been able to so who knows but um yeah, an interesting one from that. Uh, and Joel, my last my last one, um, I had to give a nod to one of your favourite uh, players, actually, Joel, Victoria Azarenka, um, because she had a bit of a breakthrough at Miami back in 2009. Um, you know, she was a very up-and-coming player. She was still only a teenager. She was around 11 in the world at the time. Um, she was having a great year, Um that year so she'd won her first title um, in Brisbane that year Um, she's got to the fourth round of the AO I don't know if anyone remembers but it's when she played she got to the fourth round for the first time at Slam got to the fourth round was playing Serena and she had to retire because of the heat. And I remember watching that match. It was such a shame because I was so looking forward to kind of the matchup between the two of them. And we were kind of denied because of, you know, it was just like heat stress. It was just crazy hot. Um, but they met again in Miami. And yeah, Victoria Azarenka beat Serena um, and became the, well, one of the youngest, obviously, champions of of the tournament. Um and actually, you know, I think it was just such a nice moment for her because it was, she hadn't been able to even carry on with her match at the AO. So the next time they played, obviously, Azarenka kind of took her out and and won, won her biggest title of her career at that point. Um, and she has now, she then went on to win Miami in 2016 as well. She did the Sunshine Double that year. Um, she got into the top 10 with that win. And obviously only a couple of years later, she won her, she, you know, won her two slams in Australia, and interestingly, she's the only player to ever have won four WTA tour level finals against Serena. So she actually has a pretty good record against Serena, and it all started here in Miami. Um, and I just thought, do you know what? It was a, it was a nice. I really liked that period of of women's tennis because you had like Azarenka, wasn't And they were, you know, they've been top juniors. They were very, you know, young still coming onto the tour and. I don't know. I was excited by what they could, what they could do. And Avereng is one of those players that for me, she should have won a lot more than obviously she has, but I know she's had her timeouts and her difficulties, but this was really the beginning of her at her peak. I think Um, those couple of years where, you know, eventually she got up to world number one, got her two slams, and she was a real force to be reckoned with. And I think this was the first time we kind of got to see that really, um, at a real high level, you know, against Serena, who was the world number one at the
0: time. Yeah, I I I know. I I can completely understand where you're coming from because I think there's, a, there's very few players, I think, um, you know, from that era, I guess, who can live with Serena Williams on a tennis court in terms of kind of living with the kind of the, the power and the ferocity that kind of comes back at you from from those ground strokes. But Azarenka, I think, is certainly one of those players, you know, sort of like a Kvitova where you know, she can take whatever power is kind of thrown at her and is able to kind of um, hit, hit it straight back at uh hit it straight back to the other side of the court so um yeah i think that's probably why she kind of is is quite well suited i guess to playing serena you know it's obviously she loves the kind of the big matchups as well um so yeah i kind of i kind of yeah that was a big moment because uh yeah i mean i mean it's always a big moment i guess if you're kind of beating the you know the world number one so um you know in 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 their back doors in their back in their backyard so um so um yeah so those are eight moments um we as i said we'll recap them on social media um but uh, we're gonna choose very quickly our our favorite uh kim i think i already know what is your what was your favorite of of those of the moments we've kind of gone through well
1: i would say Rafael Nadal beating Federer for the first time in 2004, but that actually <laughs> wasn't a uh, one that we said. Um, so I'm I'm gonna well, okay, I'm gonna. Can I steal one of yours, Joel? Yeah, okay. go for it. Okay. <laughs> I want to say Joe Konta because um, I just think this really gave her such a boost, and it was kind of came out of the blue, and it was like, wow, she's she's really. You know, onto something here, and I just, I just think, yeah, I would never have thought that, um, I don't know, that she was going to win a Premier Mandatory title, and I think it was probably the high, well, apart from the slams and obviously the semis that she's reached and and what have you, this has got to be, you know, obviously her best victory in her career, and really, I think if she ha- maybe if she hadn't have won Miami, she might not have had the confidence to go on and and reach those slam semifinals. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for that one.
0: Fair enough. Uh, I am going to go for. I think it's an obvious one, but I will go for Federer and Nadal meeting for the first time in the final. Because, as I said, I think you know they had met before, but I think this was the match that kind of cemented and forged the rivalry and. You know the fact that Federer came down, you know, back from two sets, two sets of love down against Nadal. You know, it just shows you, I guess, what we were in for as fans.
1: True. And Joel, I would have picked that if Rafa had won. <laughs> <laughs> I would have said, "Oh, yes, yeah. it's the greatest." Of course, ever. <laughs> of course, you would
0: have. Of course, you would have. But yes, those are those are what we we have chosen. Um, of course, we want to know what our listeners think. So what we're going to do is we're going to put those moments. On a vote on our Twitter page uh, and you can vote which is your favorite and we'll find out which of our what our listeners are thinking in terms of what's there been their favorite Miami moment from recent memory um but yeah I think that's it for this episode I uh, hope you have enjoyed listening to this very special hundredth episode um, very quickly uh, we have also to kind of commemorate the hundredth episode we are kind of branching out Uh, into into some something that's very close to us you know we're big tea drinkers here in the uk and so we have made we have got some passing shot mugs very exciting um and uh, we're going to be uh, we're going to be promoting them on our social media. And if you're interested in purchasing one, uh, let us know. Um, we will kind of be yeah putting them up on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, just get in contact with us um, if you're interested um, in, in purchasing. But all the details will will go out on our social media. So if I look out for that, um, yeah, just our way of kind of recognizing our, our hundredth episode. But um, yeah. For now, uh, thanks for listening. Of course, um, remember to subscribe to us. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, uh, to leave us a rating and a comment. uh, Follow us on social media um, at PassingShotPod. If you want to email the show as well, PassingShotPod at gmail.com. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.